Welcome into the second episode ever of Cyberly, the show where we talk about B2B marketing, tech trends, how they all fit into the world of logistics, especially when it comes to the creator and the attention economy. I'm your host, Blythe Brumley. I own a company called Digital Dispatch, and I help other marketers out there with the same problems you're probably dealing with. And so on today's show... I want to break down some of the big April Fool's Day happenings that have gone on in the world of marketing. Some might argue that they're fails, but if they ultimately get the attention of your audience, are they fails or are they not? So we're going to break down some of those. We're also going to get in some LinkedIn creator profile news, and then we're going to chat with Albin Brook. He's the head of marketing over at Buzzsprout, which is a podcast hosting company. So he's going to break down a lot of different stats that they're discovering across their platforms that sort of help a lot of the small creators realize the value of the work that they're going after as you know some other programming and some of the the marketing slang you might hear out there in the world is that the riches are in the niches and that's really what Albin sort of gives us smaller creators that that want to be bigger creators in the future it gives us that confidence boost that we need in order to keep on creating or to get that podcast started that you've kind of been sitting on for a little while So the first topic that I want to dive into is this April Fool's Day marketing campaigns. And I want to run through a few of these really quick because this uh, this first one is kind of a doozy and it happened just recently. Burger King announced a a new announced a new program in order to hire in order to get more women in the kitchen. And they tweeted it out just like that. Women belong in the kitchen. And of course, uh, it didn't go so hot over on Twitter. They also took out a print ad and they made that headline, Women Belong in the Kitchen. And of course, in our society where a lot of people really only read the headlines. They don't really read into too much more than that. I think Twitter actually has a warning now for folks who don't click on a link. They just want to go retweet the article. They will now ask you, are you sure you want to retweet this if you haven't read it yet? So keeping that context in mind uh, about how short our attention spans are, we talked about this last week with short form video, how it's it's really, it's here to stay, it's, it's here for the future. And knowing that Burger King sent out this tweet, and so obviously it caused a lot of uproar, but what they were meaning to do is they were trying to highlight the gender disparities in the restaurant industry because around 20% of chefs are women. And so they were announcing a new scholarship scholarship program in order to get more women to pursue a career in the culinary world and maybe come into a a, a Burger King, quote unquote, restaurant and become a chef for them. And so the meaning was there. The insight was there. But that campaign fell flat on its face. But I could make an argument that if a brand on International Women's Day, it's technically, you know, International Women's Month or Women's Women's History Month was just last March. Today is April Fool's Day. And so this is a good time to bring up some of the foolish things that went on in March. And Burger King's tweet was a little bit of one of them, but they actually got incredibly more attention because of that tweet than they would if they would have just sent out a generic, you know, happy International Women's Day. So you could make a case, you could make an argument that bad press is still good press at the end of the day. 
but it's still a little questionable as, as the reasoning behind that first initial line of women belong in the kitchen because you knew, especially sending it out on Twitter, that you were going to get some clapbacks in order it, 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 for that campaign. Now, the next one on this list, I think it's a little bit easier to make fun of because of the CEO, uh, the CEO of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg. He's kind of like one of those robotic people that you, you're not really sure if it's a real person or not. And coinciding with that, he was debuting some new VR technology for their o Oculus Rift uh, program, which is that that VR headset that you it sort of transforms you into another world and he had his head his head of VR on stage with him as he's going through this demonstration and instead of showing off you know a gorgeous countryside maybe a national park what did Mark Zuckerberg do he was announcing a donation to uh, to hurricane relief effort and he was doing it in Puerto Rico right after Hurricane Maria came through. So he's doing an entire profile, an entire pitch using these cartoon character characters of himself and his assistant. And they're going through and they're high-fiving. And meanwhile, the VR is displaying the destruction from Hurricane Maria in the background. So instead of showing like the more of the beautiful countryside of Puerto Rico or maybe just another location in and of itself, he decided to show off uh some of the 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 destruction that went on during hurricane maria and it did not look very it, it did not look like he uh pre-approved or even watched what this demonstration would look like ahead of time you're, you're probably seeing it on screen right now this is when they're high-fiving in front of the the, the flooding and the, the destruction from a hurricane so not the best place to promote your new vr technology and i'm sure Few people got uh, got got reprimanded after that was done, and it's just it's so just blatant disregard for for just having straight empathy, and that's one of the bigger criticisms of Mark Zuckerberg is that he lacks empathy for the common day people, and not a good look. And then finally, on our April Fool's Day news um, is Gary Dahl. He convinced back in 1975, he convinced one. 0.5 million people to buy a pet rock. I don't know if you know many of the people who are out there watching this remember having a pet rock. I remember my parents having a pet rock and they sat it up on the countertop for years. And I always wondered what kind of crazy person would buy something like this. And thinking of my parents, they were the ones who bought one, but also 1.5 million other people bought one. He sold these over the course of six months for $3.95 each. It was $2.95 cents in costs for shipping, labor, investor fees, but he only paid one cent per rock. So he was profiting about a dollar a rock to make about 1.5 million in that six months. And so adjusted for inflation, remember this is back in 1975, adjusted for inflation, he made about $7.3 million, which is incredible if you think about it from today's perspective, that he just took something and made it into nothing. And it's one of those moments that you really, uh, it, it, you take a step back and you look around maybe your house and to see if you could possibly sell something, you know, for one cent at cost and maybe a less than $3 in labor and have, you know, millions of people go out and purchase this, purchase not a device, but purchase this item that has no significant value. But you could make an argument that a pet rock is ideally the perfect pet 
You don't have to feed it. You don't have to take it outside to use the bathroom. You don't have to. It, it's not going to chew up your socks or chew up your homework. It's it's one. Of, it's probably that was the marketing pitch behind it. So those are three instances where you can take an example of real world marketing fails, but are they really fails? Is it really sort of fair to put them in that group when in reality, you got one guy that's making a lot of money. The Oculus Rift is just insensitive. And it's not something that, you know, Zuckerberg probably should have pre-planned that. But and then also with the Burger King tweet, all of these instances are examples of marketing that got probably more press than what they deserved or what they originally would have planned. And so that I think that that's just a good lesson to take from it, that it maybe seems foolish in the beginning, but if it ends up turning into dollar signs, I'm not sure that many people couldn't make an argument against it. And so real, real quick before we get into an interview with Albin Brook, I wanted to talk about LinkedIn launching creator mode for profiles. So this change on your profile, it's rolling out in the next few weeks to all different profiles. You have the option to add video to your avatar and then also to your header photo on your LinkedIn profile. And it also moves up the activity and post section of your profile just above the about us page or about us section of your profile. So it really is a great addition in order to, to highlight some of the important things and the valuable things that you're promoting on LinkedIn, because nine times out of 10, people aren't trying to read your bio. They're trying to read what insight that you have in order to, in order to choose whether they want to engage with your profile more often than not. And so just keeping that in mind, be, be on the lookout for that section. And so next up, we're going to roll into the interview pre-recorded yesterday with Albin Brook of Buzzsprout. Welcome in Albin Brook, Director of Marketing for Buzzsprout, which is a podcast hosting company. Now, Albin, you have been in the podcasting world for a while now, but you got your start in, logis in, in law. How did you sort of find your pathway to law and then ultimately to podcasting? Oh, man. Um, well, I worked for a handful of different construction law firms before I decided to go to law school. I got an English degree, which is kind of one of those. Yeah, you're going to need to go back to school if you actually want to have a real job <laughs> degrees. So it, you learn a lot about the world, but maybe you don't uh, build a lot of practical skills. So I ended up working in a few different law firms as a runner, then as a paralegal and uh, decided I really liked law. Um, my dad and grandfather were both laws and that uh, grandfather was a judge. They both were like, this is not really the career for you. We know you, this doesn't seem like it's going to work. And I was like, no, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so went to law school, practiced uh, construction law for a year and a half and quickly realized they were right. Um, often your parents actually know you better than you know yourself, especially when you're younger. So don't you hate that? <laughs> <laughs> If only I could go back and actually take some of the advice rather than just replicating it now with my daughter, where I'll tell her what to do and be, and uh, you know, be disregarded the way I disregarded my parents. Um, but quickly realized I wanted to leave, and that technology and the tech world is where I wanted to be. Uh, I'd always had a passion for podcasting, and so when I saw the opportunity um, to leave law and join a podcasting company. I knew is what I wanted to do. So it's a really big career change. It's definitely a big leap. Um, very lucky that I had family that supported me in doing it. And here I am now. 
Now with podcasting, this used to be something that you would have to explain to other folks. Like this is what a podcast is. This is where you go to download an episode and you can follow other episodes. Do you find that that educational gap has, has increased or decreased over the years? Uh, well, the old days you have to, um, you didn't even have phones. You'd go onto your computer and you'd get on iTunes and you'd download some podcasts and put them into an iPod and then listen to them as you walked around. Uh, that was much more difficult. And we've really, it, there's a big shift when we started getting smartphones that you could download directly. And then there's another shift when um, the iPhone started having the podcast app pre-installed. And then the latest shift has been the last four years with Spotify. Spotify's done a really good job of, they already get all these people to sign up for their app to listen to music. And then when people see, not in the mood for music, but there's this other thing called podcasts, maybe I'll try that. They've introduced millions of new listeners to the podcast ecosystem, which has um, really been great because they're people who just weren't aware or didn't understand how to get a podcast before. Now, with your career or your background in law, was that your initial thinking of what you were going to actually be doing in the podcast field? Were you going to be a lawyer for for maybe Buzzsprout or maybe some podcast creators? Did you see those two industries sort of uh, blending together? I initially you just the job wanted to I leave. Took, <laughs> the, the job I took was actually with our parent company, which was mostly running support then doing legal work for one of our apps and then like a promise of, Hey, someday I'll do marketing and, you know, realize like marketing was the thing that I was better at and I really enjoyed. And so as we continue to grow the apps, kind of let those other responsibilities go, I still maintain my law license, but I haven't, you know, actually practiced law in six and a half years now oh, since wow. I left the firm. So, so every it, once in a while, I'll send a mean letter. But besides that, <laughs> uh, not a whole lot of legal practice. Well, I'm sure the company is very happy to at least have that that uh, resource available to them if and when they ever need it, um, which may happen more often than not. Who knows what, what goes on, I guess, uh, but behind the doors with a lot of different companies. So one of the more fascinating shows that, that Buzzsprout actually produces that, that, that you help and you're a creator for them as well is you started releasing these stats, these, these industry-wide stats that are specific to the Buzzsprout platform. Why, what made you want to start releasing those stats out to your audience? So there's a few different reasons, and maybe each person in the company had different reasons for doing it. On the marketing side, um, journalists want to write interesting stories that are backed up by data. And if you want, as a company, to work your story, yourself into those stories, giving a journalist hard, concrete data is the best way to do it. And it was painful to me every time that I would get you know, a developer to run some data, to, that I'd have to go and reach out to journalists and try to get them to write something. And eventually I, we were like, let's just publish it all publicly and put it out there all the time. And then journalists can find it on their own and then reference it each month as they write new stories. So that was one of the big things is just being able to get into the public eye uh, with that page. Another was that it was just frustrating to us to see people who didn't have access to any real data kind of trying to infer what changes were happening in the industry 
or just kind of pontificating about it when you know we knew that we had direct access to real data well you know nearly a hundred thousand active podcasts um tens of millions of downloads each month we were able to see actual real trends and we wanted to bring that to light um, for anybody who's trying to figure out how to market your company i mean just being able to provide unique data sets is really powerful and uh it's just it's interesting to everybody involved and especially journalists who want to write about you now, it, what really stood out to me is the stats and the comparison for the some of the smaller creators out there. I, I think that one of the stats that you guys released said that the over if you get like 50 plays or something on an episode, you're in the top 1%. Am I right in, in that stat? I think there's if you get over 37 plays in the first week, uh, your podcast is in the top 50%. So it's above average. And what I love about that stat is it breaks this myth that all the podcasters are like Joe Rogan and This American Life and Serial or something that they all are getting tens of millions of downloads a month, when the reality is most podcasts are run by people, hobbyists, brands, businesses that are trying to connect with a very specific audience. You know, they're trying to connect with a few thousand people worldwide. And so for them to actually connect with the correct 37 people is actually really powerful. Uh, so I love sharing that stat because podcasting is not going to get you massive breadth. You're not going to be in front of tens of millions of people, maybe if you podcast for 10 years, but in the beginning, it's going to be small, but you're going to create a real level of intimacy and depth and trust with your audience that is really unmatched anywhere else. Have you heard of of any creators who or podcasters who have maybe heard that stat and it gives them motivation to keep going? Because that's what it did for me. It was it, it was definitely an industry example where you, you get frustrated at times thinking that, you know, why isn't I really put a lot of effort into this episode? Why am I not getting more downloads? Right. And then you hear that stat and it's like, oh, well, maybe I am doing something right. Is that encouraging for a lot of your maybe, maybe your customers? Yeah, absolutely. And you can remember that like with this level, let me, let me step back a little bit when everything was in person and we did more business with a handshake and we talked directly to people, we were thrilled if we had the opportunity to speak to 30 people, to 30 real life people. We knew that that made a difference and it could hit the bottom line of our company. But when we moved online and everything was about YouTube and Twitter and TikTok and whatever new hot app came out. All of a sudden, people were reaching tens of millions. But what happened was, as we got these massive numbers, we ended up trading the depth and trust that we used to build in person for just the mass exposure. And the problem is, um, for a lot of businesses, you need a lot more trust than somebody's seen a few of your tweets, that they've read a Facebook post that you made. That's not going to land you any business. But... All right, one that popped into mind uh, was a small business that helps people uh, start call centers for their their company. So if you're you're doing a lot of call center work, he would come in and he would help you set it up. And instead of doing this mass audience, you know, trying to put everything on YouTube or blogs or somewhere that there were tons of people, he did a podcast, and he was only getting 150 downloads per episode. And so we asked him, like, oh, has this ever been valuable as a marketing channel? He goes, well, 
there's only so many people at any time who are looking into starting uh, a call center for their company. And he's like, and what, since I've started this, I became right, um, recognized as an industry expert. I have a reason to reach out to the other influencers in the industry. I get to share my experiences and I get to teach what I'm doing so that my potential customers, when they start researching this on their own, you know, they're asking all these questions. What are the best KPIs for a call center? How do I hire the right people? And they're finding his show. And once they realize this is more work than I want to do, well, who have they trusted? Who have they built up a relationship with over hours and hours and hours of listening to him was the guy who started the podcast. And so, you know, if you can think if your business is one of these businesses that trust is very important building up a relationship with your clients is important. You know, you're in it for the long haul. You're not in it for, um, you know, this is a fly by night business. They'll be here for only two years. Podcasting is a really great way to scale those in-person type relationships, um, with, you know, 30 or hundred or 500 potential clients. I love that story. It, it, it's such a good, just, uh, to, to, I guess, relate to another creator who isn't getting that many downloads in the grand scheme of things but it sort of goes back to to what i like to preach is is worry about the right metrics don't worry about the vanity metrics um so you you were talking about um all of the different stats that you guys have released but over the last year have you seen podcasting habits change because everybody's working from home maybe they're not you know uh commuting as much so are they listening less or are they actually listening more what do the latest sort of industry stats sort of lean more towards? Well, right at the beginning of all of the lockdowns, we saw a dramatic decrease in podcast listenership. Um, and that always come back up. But the reason it dropped so dramatically was all of our habits were disrupted. You know, when most of us were driving on average 45 minutes to work every day, we were listening to podcasts or listening to music or the radio or whatever it may be. And all of a sudden that was disrupted. Over the summer and then into the fall and now back a full year later, people have started to catch back up. They go, okay, I listen now on a run rather than on my drive. Um, so those have shifted. Another thing is Spotify, by bringing millions of new people into the ecosystem, is just about neck and neck with Apple Podcasts. Apple has been really like the, you know, kind of almost controlled the podcasting industry for its entire life. They've had the best directory. They've been very kind in sharing all that data with everybody. And so they've kind of been this benefactor for the entire ecosystem since its inception 17 years ago. And in the last four years, Spotify has really done a good job of introducing more people to podcasting and has really caught up. So in the next few days, we will release our March numbers. And I think either March or April, we will expect Spotify to be the most used podcast app um, across all of the Buzzsprout platform. That's amazing because I feel I, I am a Spotify music fan and I go there to listen to Joe Rogan's clips. 
but that I do not like the listening experience whatsoever in, in Spotify. It drives me crazy that I can't have one feed for music and one feed for podcasts, meaning I can set up a queue for just my podcast only and leave the music out of it. Because to me, it's just two totally different listening habits. Um, so that's my biggest gripe with Spotify. But I, I, I'm not alone in my gripes about Spotify because you guys, Buzzsprout, you've been very vocal about you're not a fan of the way that you know Spotify has conducted some of their business um you, you pulled all of your po- all of your Buzzsprout podcasts from that platform with that i guess listener habit switching are you guys considering putting your your platform back on there or are you still re- remaining strong that you, that you just don't believe in in some of their business practices so i guess i should differentiate between um you know, the 100,000 podcasts that are on Buzzsprout, everybody gets to decide for themselves if they want to be in Spotify or not. For the four or five podcasts we produce ourselves for our own marketing, uh, we decided to remove those from Spotify and I don't anticipate putting them back. The reason we're doing that is Spotify's whole goal, they've invested um, over half a billion dollars in the podcasting space. And their goal is to become the YouTube of podcasting. You know, they want everybody to go to Spotify for all their podcast needs. For creators will go there to create their shows. Advertisers will go there to buy ads on podcasts. And then all listeners will go there. And so they kind of get to be that middleman who really controls the industry. The reason that I love podcasting is because it's one of, and in my opinion, there's only three places online where you can connect directly to your audience without permission so that if somebody starts paying attention to you, uh, somebody else doesn't get in the way. So if you think about, if you build a big audience on Facebook, a lot of small businesses got just wrecked when Facebook said, hey, new policy, uh, we're not gonna let your so many of your posts sh- be shown to your followers that you've spent years building up. Instead, you're gonna have to start boosting that stuff. So actually pay us money so that it uh, shows to your audience. And it killed a lot of small businesses. And when YouTube decided, hey, we know you've built up this audience over years, but we're not gonna show people when your subscribers, um, when you release a new video, unless we think is a good fit for them. So they're not even gonna get a notification. Well, a lot of YouTube channels really suffered. And so that happened over and over. We see the story of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. Content creators, especially businesses who are using content as a marketing stream, these platforms do not care about you. They care about themselves, number one. They care about their audience, number two. And content creators, especially ones that are businesses that they think have money, we are very back of the line. And so I love using these algorithms and these platforms whenever it benefits me. You know, help me get in front of my potential audience on LinkedIn. Great. Thank you, LinkedIn. But the minute that they start paying attention to me, I'm going to say, hey, come to one of the places I control, which are my website, because if I ever don't like my hosting provider, I can move my email newsletter where I can email directly to somebody's inbox. I don't need permission from somebody in the middle and a podcast where I can speak directly to my audience. Every episode's downloaded. Every episode gets listened to and the engagement rates are off the charts. And so. That is the real reason why I'm skeptical of what's happening with Spotify, because a lot of creators, a lot of listeners, a lot of advertisers are excited. 
because Spotify has the ability to, sh you know, they're showing us all these new shiny features and they look great. And, but if we all decide to go the entire Spotify route, well, the world we end up in is Spotify controls everything. And then when Spotify decides, you know, we don't like this type of content anymore. It doesn't fit our goals. So we're just going to demonetize it or we're going to just not allow it in the app. Or they decide we want to put ads in everyone's podcasts. And maybe you're a nonprofit that ads don't fit what you're trying to do. It doesn't matter. They're going to put them in there anyway because it's their platform. So don't build a business on you know, rented property, try to own, we're building businesses because we want to own something and control it. So that's one of the main reasons we've been skeptical of what Spotify has been doing in the space. Is there anything that they can do to rectify that relationship or, or just, you know, sort of following the breadcrumbs? It's, it's, is, is it in your opinion, more of just an eventuality that Spotify is going to take the route that, you know, the Facebook and the YouTubes of the world have pre previously taken? Well, the only way for them to make back the money that they've invested would be to do that. You know, they need to become the platform for that, all those investments to pay off. Um, so they only can shoot for that goal. Now, when you say to rectify the relationship, Spotify is happy, you know, that we send them the podcast that want to be in Spotify. They're not too stressed out about what Buzzsprout thinks about them. They are much, much larger than we are. Um, what I would like to see is more of which this just doesn't align with spotify's business goals so they won't do it but more of them working with um, groups like the podcast index who are trying to find ways that we can standardize a lot of these new features so that everyone has the option to go to whatever host they want to whatever advertisers they want to work with to get their podcast into whatever app they would people, listeners want to listen in and it allows for a lot more diversity in the entire podcasting ecosystem rather than going to one place. I mean, just think about how different email is. You know, we have people who do their, are using Gmail, people that are on any number of services to send and receive email. You can customize it in any number of ways. But then on YouTube, the only place to really go for a video is YouTube. You know, almost all videos there and YouTube controls it. And when YouTube doesn't like you, then you're kind of cut off from video from that point on. So we'd like it to stay more of the email world rather than the YouTube world. And, and so with the, the podcasting index for, for people who don't know, is that just a way to sort of, I guess, code the, the feed that comes from everybody's podcast in order to make sure it's consistent across different providers? Yeah, exactly. The whole idea would be, let's talk about how this entire industry can work together to make it better rather than, you know, it's more of a democratic way of doing it rather than Spotify being the platform, which is a little bit more of a, you know, they're just a single government that's, you know, like a run, like a monarchy where they make all the decisions. And so it would take, it takes a bit more work, but that's one of the things we're really invested in now is trying to be leaders for this open ecosystem where we can all work together and make a better podcasting experience for everyone involved. So for, for the rare occasion that a podcaster will make it to the grand level that someone like a Joe Rogan has, he made his transition to a Spotify exclusive show. 
But that's you recently shared an interview of why that was you didn't do the interview. You just shared it on, on your Twitter feed. But you they had mentioned of the mistakes that he had made because he's lost that community now. If you were Rogan, what would you do? It, would you just leave Spotify um, for, for, I guess, the creators that make it to that top 1%? What should they keep in mind as they start getting offers for maybe other companies in order to work with them? Well, the reason that it was a mistake for Joe is because he built this entire podcast empire on being available everywhere. And so he was available on YouTube and in YouTube clips and on podcasts. And he only had, I think, like four employees. And it was this super lean team that was just putting out great content consistently and distributing it everywhere. And they were doing an amazing job and they were making money by selling ads. And Spotify said, hey, come be exclusive to our platform. Uh, and at that time, nobody, and I mean, like not one, uh, nobody was listening to Joe Rogan on Spotify because he wasn't there. He was where, where, available everywhere else. So when he moved to Spotify, he got somewhere in the range, hundreds of millions of dollars, at least a hundred, and could have gone quite a bit up from there depending on how the whole deal ends up working out for at least a few years, totally locked in there. The downside is, well, now his audience is definitely not growing as fast as it could. He has less reach. It's going to be more difficult for him to reach these top level guests that he's consistently, you know, was able to reach. Like um, he had Bernie Sanders on his podcast and he had Elon Musk on his podcast. And he'd consistently have celebrities and artists and all sorts of people on his shows. And so he diminished his audience growth. He made it hard. He lost quite a bit of his audience who just weren't interested in moving over to Spotify because they already were listening somewhere else. Um, made it a little bit harder for him to reach new guests. And then while to us, $100 million plus sounds like incredible numbers, those numbers are really small when you think about he was getting tens of millions of downloads every month. And had he decided to, instead of going the route of going exclusive with Spotify, said, I'm just going to keep focusing on growing this even larger and selling ads. He probably could have made more money in the long run. Had he decided to go and make it a membership where the first half of the interviews are open for everybody. You know, you can listen to an hour and a half of Elon Musk talk, but if you want to hear the second half, you'll need to come over and subscribe. Or he could have created special perks. A lot of podcasts make it so... Um, Somebody can pay $5 a month, but then have access to Q&As with the guests. There's so many ways he could have monetized that and kept control. What happened is Joe Rogan built his whole empire being kind of a little bit, you know, at times racy, saying he's kind of bringing in controversial topics, saying, I'm just going to be me and I'm not going to worry what anyone thinks about it. Well, that doesn't work when you have a corporate uh you know, corporate company that is looking over your shoulder going, hey, this may not be politically correct, or we don't really like this viewpoint. And, you know, inevitably, like everybody expected to happen, um, certain episodes were being censored or being taken down. So it never really aligned with his interests. And, you know, $100 million, a lot of money, it just seemed short sighted at the time. 
Yeah, I agree. I the the listening experience is just so inferior on on Spotify. So if if they ever get a chance to to listen to this show, just fix the listening experience. And I think that <laughs> in adding a more community feature to it, because that was the great part about YouTube as well, is that you can scroll down. Or maybe some of the worst parts about YouTube is the comment section. It's the but... best and the worst part of YouTube for sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. But but as we're we're starting to talk about you know the the community aspect and that importance to to podcasting. Buzzsprout is also very high on community. You have a very successful Facebook group. Was that in the initial plans for for marketing of of Buzzsprout? How does building a community fit into the overall marketing plan for you guys? Hmm. So the way I've always thought about our marketing is that we are first and foremost educators. We're trying to make it easy for people to get a podcast online and distributed to the world. And so the first thing was just writing a really good blog post about how to start a podcast. And then when people would ask specific questions, how do I do artwork for podcasts? How do I do this for podcasts? We just started answering those questions. And over time, I was realizing I could invest a lot of time on social media, trying to get people to pay attention to me. And the minute that I stopped, it all disappeared. But I realized I spent sat down once and for two days I wrote how to write the create the best podcast artwork and then i was seeing it was getting thousands of reads every month and for a year i didn't touch it again it continued to get thousands of reads and i realized the power of putting out these really excellent pieces of content that could just live out on the web for years and lots of people would read and appreciate and link to and i'd continue to get new readers and so that was kind of the moment where i realized we need to be creating as much educational content as possible. So when somebody decides, I wanna investigate this podcasting thing, that we were helping them. Because it's the same thing um, that I'm advocating for small businesses to do with podcasts. You become the trusted source of information. You build a lot of trust with your audience. You teach them how to do things on their own. And then if they want somebody to pay somebody to help them, then you can be the solution. You don't have to be the solution every time. Uh, sometimes they will go and just learn from you and be thankful. But we wanted to be the partner for people when they were starting a podcast. So that ethos worked as, is part of our app where we're trying to make it as simple as possible for people to get a podcast out to the world to our uh, support team where most of our competitors, you know, it may take a day or two for you to get a response. Uh, we respond to everybody within 15 minutes. Like we're really trying to be as helpful as possible because we know anytime you are, you know, maybe you started working in one industry and now you're kind of being pulled into marketing a little bit. Well, once that starts happening, you need someone who can tell you, hey, I don't know your industry, but let me teach you a little bit about this podcasting thing and make that simple because you have the expertise uh, you in your industry, but you may not necessarily understand how all the little technical things fit together. And a little bit of help then really goes a long way. 
And then it also creates this good feedback loop of the questions that still remain out there and the questions that your audience is still asking, despite having all of this educational stuff in there. Maybe there's a way that you can just tweak something just a little bit so that extra person can understand um, and eventually, you know, possibly become a, a customer down the line. But with, I think, a lot of your content, especially the podcast, they, they just there's no selling involved. It just comes naturally, which is why I love you guys. Um, so with your experience with watching all of these different podcasters start and grow and flourish, what are some of the creative ways that you've seen someone market their podcast? Because I, I could make it, you know, an argument, and I'm sure you would agree that the discoverability is, is, is the biggest issue with podcasts, that it's tough to discover a new podcast outside of word of mouth. Are there any creative ways that you're seeing out there uh, that podcasters are utilizing to get that, it, I guess, uh, that word of mouth on steroids? Sure. Word of mouth is still the best marketing channel for almost every business. You know, we are, I feel like all the online marketing nerds want to be able to connect every $5 you spend to a click to a person and track it the whole way. But the fact of the matter is a lot of times before someone even sees my ad, they've already heard something from a person, you know, so that's really word of mouth is a big part of that. And so what we see a lot of times is we're trying to provide this uh, a really awesome experience so that people can uh, recommend us through word of mouth. So with podcasting, how do you make it so that people, we put their the word of mouth exposure on steroids? Well, one, you have to have a very crystal clear, like one sentence explanation of what your podcast is about. If your podcast is about everything, then it means it's not interesting. Nobody will see that's the podcast for me. If it's about a specific, a very focused thing, then and all of your listeners will go, oh, I know three people who would also be interested in this and they could reach out and recommend them. So if you have a podcast, it's like, oh, this is about TV shows and, and culture. I mean, nobody goes, oh, I have a friend who's really into TV shows and culture. You know, they're going to reach out to that person. But if you've got a podcast that is about a specific soap opera. Well, if they know somebody who is into that soap <laughs> opera, they will tell them, Hey, this is the show you should be listening to very or loudly. If about, <laughs> or if it's about the logistics company uh, industry, they will reach out to their friends and say, Hey, I listened to this podcast about the logistics industry. And I think you would really get a lot from it. And so focusing on a particular topic and then, um, kind of reiterating this is what the topic the podcast is about over and over is really valuable because your listeners then can use that to recommend it to other people uh, how do you see video playing a role in that we've seen you know a lot of podcasts moving their their show to YouTube and just adding you know up a, a, an image while the audio plays in the background obviously Spotify has invested a ton not enough yet into their video <laughs> component of of their podcasting how do you see that do you see it playing a greater role within the industry the way I see it works in the industry it actually is beneficial to podcasters is when podcasts actually record video first. They create a video asset and then they use that to create the podcast. So unless you're actually filming the interview, um, like with a camera, like we're doing right now, what you end up with is just a piece of artwork and some audio up on YouTube. And that does not work. 
you know, over and over, I've seen podcasts try to go that route. And what they end up doing is just kind of creating these lame YouTube channels that get 20 views per episode. Um, and really, those are going to be views that are like 10 seconds of somebody watching, not people listening to the whole episode. So the numbers are really not exciting unless you do pretty much what Joe Rogan was doing. Record the entire thing in video so people can engage with the audience. They can see the uh, reactions and kind of have fun along with the guest. And then the other thing that Joe did really well was he cut his podcast up into clips. And so you would have a celebrity talking about a very particular thing. It'd be like Jamie Foxx talking about creativity. And so that every once in a while, one of those would go viral and you'd see it on YouTube and go, that's kind of sounds interesting and click on it. And that could be people's first experience of the podcast. So what it allows you to do is to use YouTube, this platform to drive interest in your podcast. And then you are able to take that audience and tell them, Hey, I've got this podcast, come on over here. And what you've done is you've used the platform and the algorithm for your advantage to get in front of new people. But then the minute that they were actually like, oh, I really like your podcast, you say, come on over to this place that I control because the minute YouTube doesn't like me, I don't want to lose this relationship that we have now. And so it's really it was an excellent thing for Joe Rogan to do. And I think that all podcasters should be doing it, record in video and then upload that video to YouTube and then repurpose the audio as a podcast. That's exactly my, my creative process because I noticed that when I would look at his main channel and it's like a two hour show, I'm like, I don't want to invest my time into that. But then the algorithm would recommend the clips channel and it's you know anywhere from five to 15 minutes long. And you watch a few of these and before you know it, you've watched the entire show. And I think that that's how they got me. And that's ultimately how I became a fan of his show and then followed him from platform to platform. Even though the experience isn't as ideal and the algorithm isn't as good as it is on YouTube, I will still go out of my way to at least check out the clips and to see if that's something that I would want to invest my time in. But that's not, you're absolutely 100% right. That's how podcasters can get that extra discovery ability is by making those clips because short form video we covered it in last week's show that it's not going anywhere and, it, and if anything it's just going to be increasingly adopted more and more as as a marketing tactic and as just a regular just a consumption uh, I, I can't tell you it's probably embarrassing how many hours i spend on short form video <laughs> each day i could be getting so much more done uh, but speaking of the creative process uh, you guys produce not only do you produce your educational content but you you, you I think you said you have five shows now within the, the Buzzsprout ecosystem. What is sort of your creative process when you're, you're thinking of new topics for a show or how do you show plan for the future? Um, so we start with an SEO mindset. You know, I, um, one of the first things I did when I got into marketing was try to teach myself SEO and really the doing keyword research, trying to find what things are people actually searching for on Google and which of that subset could I actually rank for? You know, if you try to rank for credit card, you are never going to because the people who are ranking for credit card are, you know, these companies that have invested tens of millions of dollars in building that website. So I couldn't do that. But there's pretty long tail keywords like, how do I get a podcast into Spotify? 
Uh, for a long time, I outranked Spotify on keywords like that. And it was really valuable to be able to be the person who answered that. So we do a lot of research and figuring out what questions are people asking and which of those questions can we answer? And then which of those questions actually fulfill some business uh, va value for us? And so we went through, we did that whole process um, and we came up with just a lot of keywords that we will continue to target time and time again. And so we do it on our blog where we try to write the world's best blog post on each topic. We do it on our YouTube channel where we're trying to create the best video on that topic that we can. And then we do it in our podcast episodes where we are trying to create the best podcast episode on those topics. And the goal is we want to have uh, pretty much no matter what type of medium you prefer, that you'd be able to listen to us teach you how to solve any podcast problems you have. Smart, because I've also seen you very active on the app Clubhouse, which some have called sort of a podcast killer. Where do you see, how do you, how do you see those, those two platforms? Uh, do you see them aligning or competing with each other in the future? Well, there was a big shift in like TV when the Betamax and the VCR came out and people were able to start recording things because we realized, oh, you don't have to watch your bit, your TV show that's on Fridays at 8 p.m. You don't have to watch it at 8 p.m. You could actually record it and watch it later. That was a huge shift for TV. And it's funny that podcasting has always been a time shift. You could listen to it whenever you wanted because it was put out now and I found episodes that were seven years old that were really valuable to me. And what we're actually doing is we're saying, hey, there's actually a little bit that's lost when something's produced and put out there and maybe the audience discovers it seven years later. There's something special, no matter what we think about going to a sporting event, going to a concert, doing something live and with people. And so what Clubhouse is doing and pretty much everybody that's copying them as fast as they can is they're saying, hey, let's try to get conversations going among people while um, in real time. So there's some things that are exciting. You know, you can have a, you know, spontaneous, you know, these kind of spontaneous conversations that are really interesting. You can connect with people you never thought you would have connected with. And there is some kind of magic that happens. But for anybody who can't listen at the exact time, then you miss out. And so I don't think it's um, something that will kill podcasting. I think it's probably this new thing that we're realizing. We kind of like these conversations, but we'd like for more people to be able to just go on and do them versus you know putting something out there for years as a static thing. So I, I'm a fan. I just don't think it's going to replicate what podcasting is doing. I also am a little bit, you know, skeptical that Clubhouse will be the one who wins this industry. Right now it's the coolest thing because it came out during um, you know, this global pandemic where a lot of people are spending way more time at home than they ever have before and they wanted to be talking. But I could easily see platforms that already have really big networks of friends and acquaintances and business partners like um, LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook that have already built up all of that social graph. I think a lot of them will be really set to 
win these areas, which are really just conversations between Mm. people who are interested in the same topic. That's a really good way of looking at it, because when Twitter Spaces was announced, that was my first thought is I have a Clubhouse account, but if Twitter is where I'm more active, I think that that's probably where if I were to invest my time into creating more audio content like that, then that's probably where I would invest it, that or, or LinkedIn. Okay, so we only got a couple minutes left, but if you are speaking to a potential new podcaster out there, give us a couple tips of, of must-dos and must-don'ts that you would give to a, a, a on-the-fence podcaster. Sure. So number one is consider audio quality, but don't become a slave to it. A lot of people think you have to do thousands of dollars in audio equipment to get good sound. Um, if you go and buy a $60 microphone, and plug it right into your computer, you can sound great. One we recommend a lot is the Samson Q2U. It's a really great mic. Um, Second is really focus on what is the topic that you can talk about every week, that you're excited about, that serves some purpose for you, whether it be you're enjoying yourself or has a business purpose. What is the topic you can talk about? Um, Going you know, maybe three is kind of following up on that is what is the thing you naturally talk about to with friends? And what is the thing that people always ask you questions about? If people are always asking you questions about something, they notice that you have a particular knowledge in that area. And so you should be sharing that on a podcast so you can reach many more people. Um, Four, just hit the basics in distribution. So once you've got your podcast up on a site like Buzzsprout, Make sure it gets into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. Those are the main ways that people connect to your podcast. And then when you start, commit to some you know, number, maybe 10 podcasts that you're going to put out before you start judging the return on investment. Because podcasts are very slow growth. But if you stick with it over time, they create an incredible amount of connection and trust with your audience. It's really, really powerful. Uh, most podcasts don't make it to 10 episodes. And if you can make it for a year, you're going to be in the very top of all the podcasts in your area just by nature of you sticking with it for a year. So think about what is it that I'm interested in that actually has a purpose that I can talk about easily and then commit to maybe 10 episodes or six months or a year of podcasting about it and just see how quickly you start building an audience and building expertise in this new medium. I love that. It's great motivation for for anybody that's still kind of on the fence on whether they want to start a podcast or not. All right, Albin, finally, where can people find more of your work? Um, So I'm Albin Brook on Twitter. And if you have any questions and you want to talk about marketing or leaving law or podcasting in particular uh twitter's the best place to find me and i love you know just talking to people and sharing what i've learned perfect thank you so much thank you so much (laughs) 
Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Albin Brook. He's the head of marketing over at Buzzsprout, which is a podcast hosting company. And I think a lot of his insight is really valuable because he's not only speaking from a creator perspective, working inside of a business, but he's also speaking about, you know, over 100,000 podcasters who are hosting their content within their platform. So a couple of a, a few takeaways that I wanted to dive into from that interview. And, and one of the bigger ones that really gave me a lot of confidence as far as a podcaster is concerned is that if you get over 37 plays in the first week of your episode releasing, you are in the top 50% and above average of all podcasters out there. That That is an incredible stat, an incredible sort of confidence boost that it, it sort of goes back to the mantra of worrying about the right metrics, not the vanity metrics that a, a that can sort of consume you because a lot of, of different platforms out there reward the vanity metrics, right? It's, it's why Instagram has been testing, removing the likes or showing the like count from photos. It's why YouTube just this week announced that they're removing the, or they're testing out, removing the likes and the dislikes from certain videos on their platform. You'll still be able to see them both on Instagram and YouTube in the back of your account, as far as the analytics are concerned, but that won't be front facing. And so the idea behind that is that you will create more and you will publish more because there's that a less amount of anxiety that's involved with creating. And so I think that that's one of the more brilliant parts about podcasting is that no one can really see those metrics unless you share them with other people. And so if you are, it likes it, if you are getting more than 37 plays in the first week, of your episode dropping, you are better than 50% of the podcasters out there. So that's just an incredible stat. A couple of other takeaways is that there are monetization options for you if you don't uh, maybe want to go after the exclusive deal, or maybe another company sees what you're doing and they want to scoop up your 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 creative uh, your creative juices. So you don't have to take that route. There are other routes that you could possibly take in the future as far as monetization is concerned. You can sell your own ads. You can get a Patreon. You can get a membership. You can offer exclusive content to those supporters uh, in order to entice more subscribers to your platform. And so those are all different monetization options that you can keep in mind, even as a smaller creator than compared to some of these bigger guys out there. Um, another one is Buzzsprout's reason for creating edu educational content because they want to become the trusted source of their audience. And for a lot of companies out there that have sort of been sitting on the fence about whether they're gonna create a podcast or not, that's the perfect opportunity creating educational content that will make you the trusted source in your niche. And so that way, when users, they're not necessarily going to be ready to buy as soon as you release a new podcast, but they might be ready to buy six months from now. We live in a world where, especially in the B2B space, where buyers have all of the control now. They can do the research online. They can digest different content mediums. They can go listen to a podcast. They can watch a YouTube video. They can read an in-depth blog article. So be that source for them because they're going to go on this journey of education and then they'll eventually be ready to buy. Not all of them, but when they do get ready to buy, they already trust you. And so whenever they come to your website, that's an opportunity to get them to convert quicker because you've been investing in that one-on-one -on -one relationship of creating that educational number one source of content for them. So keep that in mind as well. 
and then also creating a video asset to go along with your podcast. That's what I do in my content strategy. I create a video first experience and then I strip the audio from it and I put that audio up on my podcast feed and then I take the, the main file, the main video file, and I cut that up into different clips because I want that barrier of entry to be lessened whenever my audience discovers me. I, I want them, and as I'm consistently putting out new content, if I make short clips from two to five minutes, that's not as much of a time investment as a 45 minute to maybe a two hour long show. And so if I'm creating that enticing content from the very beginning, then I, I, in a short form format, like what we talked about on last week's episode, then you're enticing that user to go and or that listener to go and digest the entire episode because they know after watching that short clip that this is going to be worth their time. We're create we're competing in an ever growing attention economy and more and more people as they're starting to create they're moving into a space where we have less attention to give to everybody. So by using those clips, you are really putting yourself to the greatest advantage in, in order to, to close that gap of how they digest your short form content into your long form content and hopefully eventually down the line become a customer. Now that about does it for today's show. Once again, my name is Blythe Brumley. If you want to find more information about me, just hit up digitaldispatch.io and you can also watch the replays. And we're also on Apple Podcasts and all the different podcast listening apps. Look up Cyberly.